Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Shani Orgad, and I'm a professor of media and communications at LSE, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this LSE public event in which our speaker, Professor Loretta J. Ross, will challenge us to think about cancel culture and how we can and should call in and not call out. Um, professor Ross will speak for uh, about 40 minutes, and then we will then open the floor to Q&A from our audience. The event uh, uh, is part of the LSE's Shaping the Post-COVID World series. And if you want to tweet, the hashtag for the event is LSE Calling Out. Um, I'll just say a few words of introduction and then hand over to Loretta. Loretta J. Ross is a visiting associate professor um, at Smith College in the US, where she teaches about the call-out culture and white supremacy. Her career began as an activist back in the 70s when she joined the women's movement by working at the first rape crisis center in the US. Um, Loretta has also researched and fought hate groups such as the KKK in the 90s um, and founded the US National Center for Teaching People about their human rights. She also co-founded the reproductive justice organization, Sister Song. Our, our recent co-written books include Reproductive Justice and Introduction, as well as Radical Reproductive Justice, both published in 2017. And next year, her new book will be published, which is called Calling In the Calling Out Culture, about which um, I'm sure we'll hear more now. So without further ado, I'm deeply honored to welcome Professor Loretta Ross, please. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I hope you can hear me now. Okay, I just wanna tell a little bit of a background about how I arrived at this topic. <clears throat> I'm a boomer, almost 70 years old, so I wasn't aware of how prevalent the call out culture was until I got on social media, which was relatively recently, like in the last 10 years. And I noticed how mean people were to each other online. And I became convinced that people were saying to things to each other online that they probably would hesitate to say if they were in person with that person that they were admonishing or scolding or calling out. And I began to speculate that my 50 years of social justice activism offered some lessons that might be useful today, because obviously in the women's movement back in the 70s, we called it trashing, where we called each other's out, gossiping behind each other's back, or shunning people for things we thought that they'd done wrong, trying to hold people accountable, but not really, because we didn't want accountability so much as we wanted punishment and sometimes revenge. And then because I'm also a member of the civil rights movement, I learned from many of my elders that they had furious fights behind doors in which they would call each other out as they disagreed on strategy and tactics. But they also had a phrase that they used quite often. Uh, this phrase was created by Reverend Joseph Flowery and the phrase said, let's learn how to turn to each other instead of on each other. And then, of course, in my work with dealing with men who have been convicted of raping and murdering women and former members of the Ku Klux Klan and the neo-Nazi movement, 
I learned quite a bit about calling in people who are probably wouldn't have out for tea or invite over for dinner, but still I was able to figure out how to have productive conversations with these most unlikely people. And so when I became aware of the call out culture and its prevalence on social media, I thought even as a boomer, I have useful lessons that I'd like to share. And so I began writing and working on this about six years ago, the book on it, Calling in the Calling Out Culture, will be published by Simon & Schuster next year. And hopefully people will glean something from these lessons of the past, as well as some current controversies, so that we can make different decisions about how we want to walk through life. Now, the first thing I wanna say is that I'm much more dedicated to the process by which we do our work more so than the issues right now. And that's because I'm part of the human rights movement. Obviously, because I'm a feminist, I care about women's rights. So I'm part of the women's rights wing of the human rights movement. But because I'm disabled, I'm also part of the disability rights wing of the human rights movement. I care about racial justice. That makes me part of the civil rights wing of the human rights movement. And I care about LGBTQ issues. So I'm part of the queer rights wing of the human rights movement. So I say that up front to say, we have to not only define what we're fighting against, but what we're fighting for as well. If we don't have a vision of what kind of world we would like to create, then we risk replicating the bad habits of the old world, that we will bring those habits of oppression with us into the future. So without a clarity of vision about what we're fighting for, I fear that we are only focusing on what's wrong with life and not what the life possibilities of life are. So I've created something called the C5 continuum, the calling in continuum. The first stage, of course, is calling out, which I'll explain. But an extreme calling out is the second stage, canceling, demanding that someone get canceled or deplatformed or fired or something that you think that they've done wrong. To pivot to the other direction is calling in, which is a method of seeking accountability, but without the public shaming and blaming of a call out. There's a fourth stage, which is called calling on. That is insisting that people do better without making an investment in their growth, because calling out means that you have to give them your attention and your investment, and so does calling in. And if you're not prepared to give that person that emotional space from your life, then you can call on them to do better. And my favorite calling on sentence is simply to look them in their eyes and say, I beg your pardon, and then just let it sit there while they figure out how they need to readdress what they, whatever they said to me. And then the fifth part of the continuum is something that we should use more often, and that's called calling it off. You really don't have an obligation to engage with people. It's a choice that you make. And you can disengage either permanently or temporarily. 
you can simply say to the person, I don't have the bandwidth to deal with this right now. Let me get back to you. Or you can decide that they're not worth your time and energy and permanently disengage. So I'm going to go through a few definitions, first of all, so that we are all on the same page. Calling out our public demands for people to change their behaviors or walk back words that they've said because you think they've made a mistake. And usually accompanying this is a public shaming, a public humiliation. It's basically an invitation to a fight. On the other hand, calling in can be done either publicly or privately, where you're really working on your skills to have difficult dialogue with other people, again, seeking accountability, but you're gonna respect their human rights and the differences between you. In other words, you're not going to invite them to a fight, you're gonna invite them to a conversation instead. As I said, calling on is requesting that people do better without investing in their growth. Canceling is demanding that people lose their jobs or their platforms or sometimes their lives. The other thing that we need to talk about as a definition is privilege, because a lot of people are confused over the concept of privilege, but privilege are advantages that one is not responsible for having, but we have a responsibility for how we use them but often their, their characteristics, their privileges, I don't want to use privileges, there are things that you have that you are not responsible for having, but you are responsible uh, for how you use them. And in the call-out culture, I see a lot of weaponizing of privilege where people use their knowledge, their identity, or their status to try to dominate and silence others. One of the things that people don't realize is that we're all victimized violators. We are all capable of having our human rights violated. At the same time, we can violate someone else's. My most common example is like the battered wife who beats her child. She is obviously a victimized violator, but a victim of racism can be transphobic or homophobic or a victim of transphobia can be misogynistic against women. So we're all capable of being that victimized violator who, who, and we all exist on this continuum. So we've got to get away from these artificial binaries of I'm a good person, you're a bad person, I do the right thing all the time and you never do the right thing. When in fact, all of us are capable of being complicated and we need to acknowledge that other people are as complicated as we are with good sides and bad sides because we all exist on that continuum. And there is a concept of performance activism where people take delight in showing off how woke they are. And that's a word meaning how conscious you are of the political situation. And many people often think that being in a woke competition is how you do human rights activism. But in fact, if you have to signal how woke you are, you're not nearly as woke as you think you are. Just as if you have to signal how rich you are, perhaps you're not as rich as you think you are. And so we really need to get out of this 
performativity that says, well, I need to call somebody out because they don't know what I know and they should know this. Calling out is the expectation that people have already grown, not the realization that everybody is on a learning curve and some people know more than others, but the other people who don't know what you know, know things that you need to know as well. And calling out has become so prevalent, we end up with identity bullies, people who use their identities to silence or dominate others. And this is also an overstatement of harm, an overstatement of a victimhood stance, because they see this as a pathway of lifting their voices, telling their truths, or gaining power. But they end up, in fact, committing a human rights violation in the effort to protect their human rights. And there's a directionality to calling in and calling out. I call it punching up when you want to hold people in power accountable because they have more clout, privilege, or social standing. And that means that they can do more harm or celebrities who are unreachable by any other means. And most of the time, I recommend that you only punch up if people have refused previous opportunities to change. Now, we all should avoid punching down, which is taking advantage of your power and privilege or status in order to harm people who can't hold you accountable. And we see this oftentimes when comedians try to tell edgy jokes that are punching down or people who uh, talk about immigrants or because they're not an immigrant, they have citizenship papers, so they're always punching down on immigrants or straight people, punching down on queer people, on and on. But most call-outs that I see in the human rights movement are neither punching up or punching down. They're punching sideways, and they're taking pot shots at those who are relatively at the same status as them and despite these differences in identity and age and race and gender and sexual orientation and gender identity, class and abilities, we feel that we know the right way to do something or the right way to say something. And so we're gonna punch sideways on the person who doesn't do it according to our specifications. And that's where I really focus my energy on. Now there's a lot of things that encourage call out culture mainly is born out of a desire to criticize other people's social justice practices. But ironically, the harshest critics are never self-critical. They never want to admit that they may not know everything they need to know or do everything correctly. And so they project out, they want to pounce on other people's practices, hopefully sometimes so that the lens is not turned on them. A lot of time people call out because they feel unheard, disrespected, or violated. They, they feel that that's the only way to get their perspective out there. But unfortunately, it is not usually a successful strategy because when you have publicly shamed and humiliated someone as a way of being heard, the thing that is most likely to happen is that they're gonna stop listening to you, that they're gonna shut down that you won't get the results that you want. And so we need to really interrogate that strategy. 
And of course, as I said, people will use their knowledge as a weapon against others and banish others because they're not woke enough in their opinion. And unfortunately, people think that social justice and human rights activism is a way to stroke their egos or boost their standing in community, in a community, and this is where the performative activism comes from. And unfortunately, also a lot of people think that we're in a struggle for political purity of opinion. And we want to use shaming and ideological bullying in order to get everyone to conform with what we think is the right opinion to have, the right way to see things, the only way to see things. And as I frequently say, we're in a human rights movement and when many different people think many different thoughts, but they move in the same direction, that is how you define a movement. But when many different people think the same thought and they move in the same direction, that's a cult, and we are not building the human rights cult. Now, there are appropriate uses of call-outs when you want to address power disparities or when people are inaccessible, when you want to avoid increasing harm by not calling attention to injustices, when you want to build a community by finding others who experience similar harms and spread information amongst them. You can use a call out appropriately. Sometimes call outs identify unmarked or hidden structures or harms or privileges that need attention drawn to them. And bringing the voices from those who are historically silenced or unheard is an important use and appropriate use of the call out. And sometimes you just wanna release how pissed off you are your outrage, your anger, and that discharge can also be achieved through a call out. And there are those rare times when public shaming actually works. And that's what the human rights movement has done historically. When we call our governments, when we call our corporations or individuals who violate people's human rights, we're using and weaponizing the power of public shaming to hold them accountable. But calling out is not always the best strategy because most times we're dealing with our power inappropriately through the calling out process. One of the things we do is demand that if we're in a situation where people are abusing their power, we demand that that power gets shifted to those who have the lived experience of being abused but without a radical change in their practices, then they're just gonna replicate the same abusive patterns that they've learned by being abused. And this is based on a scarcity-based model that tends to see power as a limited co uh, commodity. So if I, get, if I give away power, then I've lost something and this person now has the power and they'll treat me the same way that I treated them. And what this also creates is a very logical resentment of that power loss. Because if you think power is a zero sum game, then obviously you're going to feel a loss as someone else gains power. 
And then this creates that whole fear of retaliation against the former power abusers. And it leads into a false solution because it actually works to disguise power. And sometimes even in our social justice and human rights spaces, we get into structurelessness and, and, and you know, pretend democratic practices to disguise the power instead of actually look power in the face and see that we actually have enough power and enough power to share, kind of like that Buddhist principle that a lit candle loses nothing by sharing it with others. I think also calling outs are driven by identity reductionism, as I call it, or identity determinism. And this is where you believe a person's political opinion or action is always correct based on their identity. And this ignores evidence that that opinion or action is harmful because they're a white person or they're a person of color or they're a migrant or a queer person or a trans person or a woman. In other words, you are overriding, evaluating what they say and do based on the identity of the person concerned. And sometimes I find that people are hesitant to express their own opinions or positions for fear that they will be called racist or they're not black enough or white enough or Asian enough or trans enough or whatever that enough is. And this is also form of the by the desire to simplify complex scenarios or conflicts because of the identities of the people involved. And so they, and you know, identity reductionists analyze scenarios or conflicts with a, with, by failing to acknowledge the power relations that are involved. And so they ascribe more power to someone because of their identity and less power to someone else because of their identity. And I know as a feminist, I've been in a lot of rooms, for example, populated with men where if a woman says something, it's not given the same credibility that if a man says the same thing, for example, or somehow if a white person defines something as racism, they are immediately given more credibility than if a black or a person of color says something is racism. So when you're considering a calling in or a calling out, you have to be grounded in an understanding of power, the systems of oppression, and how domination works in our society. Also keeping in mind that you and everyone else you're talking about and too is a victimized violator and that our life experiences shape our responses, but they don't entitle us to believe that our truth is the only truth that exists and that we must override other people's lived experiences with our, our own. And because we are all socialized in a white supremacist culture, it really encourages us to live scripted and checklisted lives, like you, your, your identity is this, your circumstances is this, so you're supposed to be this way, those kinds of things. But life is actually more complicated than that. And we have many more choices than we think we have. And if you're considering whether to call somebody in or out, focus on the conflict at hand and what it requires to be resolved, not to prove who was right or wrong, but to keep people in the conversation 
So with that shared pool of knowledge, you can approximate an understanding of what's going on, even if you can't definitively land on one truth that is universal for everyone else. And if you focus on your shared forward-looking vision for human rights and what's required to achieve it, then you'll really understand the power of calling in and why it is a definite better strategy than calling people out. Because calling out can be very, very toxic because it replicates that prison industrial complex that we say that we're opposed with punishment and exile and shaming and blaming. So there's some irony in saying that you're against the misuse of state power in the prison industrial complex when you replicate as tactics within the human rights movement. And these tactics end up discouraging people from wanting to join our movement because who would want to join a movement that makes them feel worse about themselves than before they came? It really doesn't work. And then it frightens people out of telling their truths for fear that they'll be gaslighted, that, oh, that's just your experience. I don't believe that. And my experiences were different and your truth is invalid because it's not the same as mine. And instead of bringing people into the movement, we drive people away from the movement. And one of the things that they detect that we're doing wrong is that we disguise our privileges by weaponizing our language and act like just because someone doesn't know the latest word that should be used to describe a particular system or ism, that they're somehow less worthy of being in the conversation. And the paradox of call-out culture is that it makes accountability much more difficult. Because it, if you create a culture or participate in a culture where people are punished harshly for admitting that they made a mistake, then all you've done is encourage them to lie about whether the mistake took place in the first place, whether harm ever occurred, and whether they need to do anything differently. But if you create a calling in culture, where first of all, everybody understands that we all make mistakes and can be given grace and forgiveness for these mistakes, then people are much more likely to look their mistakes in the eye and without shame and figure out a way to do better. And so when you use the call out culture as your weapon of first choice, it ends up increasing the harm rather than increasing the possibilities of healing. And when you call people in, instead of isolating people, you help to unify them and help them become less cynical and feel less hopeless. And one of the real ironies of the call out culture is that usually the call out, particularly if it happens over social media, spirals out of control, totally out of proportion to the original thing that was identified as problematic. That with social media, somebody just calling somebody out takes on a virality of its own. And so if you can't follow the every thread of every post, you can't even figure out what the original so-called mistake was. And so it's really important for us to understand how calling out culture gets magnified. 
a podcaster named Natalie Wynn, who has done a YouTube video. Uh, she, I think her podcast is called ContraPoints. Talks about the seven stages of calling out cancel culture magnification. First of all, there's a presumption of guilt. Let's say that you were at some kind of meeting and poor Joe said something that somebody thought was racist. And then in that meeting, somebody said, well, Joe, what you said was racist. Just by using that term, there's going to be a presumption of guilt, not a presumption of innocence. And then next thing Joe knows is that this term so rapidly accelerates this accusation, so, so quickly accelerates and get abstracted, that then it becomes essentialized. It is attached to Joe's identity. So it goes from Joe said something that was racist, according to one person's opinion, noted that we have not done any investigation to see if what Joe said was actually racist, but somebody said he said something that was racist. It quickly goes from Joe said something was racist to Joe is a racist. This is that essentialism. So now it has been attached as an indictment of Joe's moral character. And the people who quickly jump on this call out bandwagon often do so from a pseudo moralistic or a pseudo intellectual stance. I know what racism is. I get to define it and I won't accept any challenges on my definition of it. And I'm the one being harmed and I'm the one feeling silenced or unsafe. So now I get to basically use my, you know, highfalutin morality to call everybody else out. And, and, and then they'll attach even some kind of intellectual justification to it. And this is based on a system of false binaries, a dualistic system. I'm right, you're wrong. You know, Joe's racist, I'm not, that kind of false artificial way of dividing the good guys against the bad guys. And then once Joe has become identified as a racist, and Joe's coffee is still cooling off because he doesn't even know this is happening around his head, but once Joe has been identified as a racist, then it becomes immersed in the culture of unforgivability which no one will ever forget that Joe is a racist, no matter what Joe tries to do to apologize and, for, and, and try to atone for what he said or someone interpreted that he said, because there's no way to win. If Joe does apologize for what he said, then, they're gonna, then he's gonna be read as insincere. But if Joe tries not to apologize, says, okay, I don't think what I said was racist, so I'm not going to apologize for it, then he's going to be read as trying to evade accountability. So it's a lose-lose for Joe. And then probably the most pernicious part of this magnification described by Natalie Wynn is contamination, infection. So if anybody comes to the defense of Joe and says, hey, we need to have due process here, we need to slow down and try to figure out what really went on, then you must be an enabler of Joe's racism. So we're going to punish and shun you too. 
And so Joe and anybody else in that room who doesn't agree with the accuser suddenly gets the political cooties as if they're the ones who are the enablers of what has been defined as Joe's racism. And this happens so fast, poor Joe doesn't even know the storm cloud is over his head until he reads on his Twitter feed within a few hours that a couple of thousand people have now decided that he's a permanently unredeemable racist. And this is often born of toxic perfectionism because we alienate people with the pursuit of political purity or political correctness by assuming that there's only one way or one right way to do things when in fact there are many paths to the mountaintop and believing that we can you know, be allies by taking away somebody's pain by being their saviors or something instead of helping people finding their own voice and lifting their own perspectives. And we end up promoting the woke competition amongst each other. And a lot of people see this injustice take place, but they're afraid to speak up for fear that they'll be thrown under the bus if they say the wrong thing or look like they're trying to defend poor Joe. And of course, a lot of this is born from the inability to be self-critical of one's own activism and really not understanding that there are many different ways to work on oppression, to work against oppression, and everybody's way doesn't have to be yours. It also shuts down the ability to listen to people with differing viewpoints. And so if you want to extract yourself from a calling out spiral, try to avoid toxic online communities and really ask yourself why you're sabotaging your own happiness with all of this unrestrained anger that gets attention, but it rarely gives any satisfaction. And you really do have a choice about whether you make the world crueler than it needs to be. And this performance of outrage because people aren't perfect really bespeaks more about you, it reveals more about your lack of political sophistication than anything that you think it actually represents. And I find that a lot of people give better breaks to friends and people that they know who say things that are problematic than to strangers. And so in many ways, you're using the fact that people know you and you know them to give them breaks that you don't give strangers. So in a way, there's a bit of hypocrisy involved in that as well. So if you want to increase your circle of influence in terms of having a greater impact on people and, and really build this calling in culture, you've got to stop overstating the harm. Just because someone says something that is sexist doesn't mean that they're going to pin you down and rape you. And so stop overreacting since we are all trying to learn the appropriate language for racial justice or trans justice and stuff, we need to be more forgiving of people's learning curves and not say, oh, well, so-and-so told a joke and so it made me feel like he was lining me up to be killed. I mean, really? Isn't that a vast overstatement of harm? And we, if we want to talk to people with whom we have differences of opinion, I recommend a strategy of instead of focusing on the words that they use, put your 
visceral reaction to their words in your mental parking lot so that you can go underneath those words and ask them about their values. Or sometimes you can just say, tell me more. It is very possible to, like if you're in a conversation with someone you know, to say, well, you know, Lisa, I know you're a good person. I've seen you do great things for people. So I want to know how I'm supposed to reconcile the good person that I know you are with the words that just came out of your mouth. Because is, am I dealing with the good Lisa or the bad Lisa? You tell me which one is the true Lisa. And so sometimes you can ask them to reflect on their values. You can talk about the values you share with them, maybe treating people with kindness or whatever. If you don't pounce on their words and start the blaming and shaming and calling out so that conversations with them are not possible. And so you have to challenge not only their narratives that are viewed through a victim lens, but you have to challenge your own narratives viewed through a victim lens. Because as I said, we're all victimized violators. And so you don't get to be the, the, the winner of the, uh, of the oppression Olympics in a conversation. Uh, we are all capable of making mistakes. And for me, speaking of mistakes, all human beings make them. And it's how we handle those mistakes that at least for me, will indicate whether or not I call you in or out. If you make a mistake and you deny that you've made a mistake and you deny the harm that your mistake has caused and you show no penitence for having made that mistake, then that increases the chances that I'm gonna call you out. Because if I don't, you may continue to make those same harms and make those same mistakes. But if you make a mistake and you, own your mistake, you acknowledge that you've made a mistake, and you're going to first apologize for the people or the person that you've harmed, and tell us how you're going to do better in the future, then I'm chance, then chances are I'm gonna call you in because I'm not into increasing your suffering or the suffering of the people that you could potentially harm. And that's why- One minute, Okay, thank you. And that's why I think that all things are recoverable. That even if you've made large mistakes that maybe ended up in a newspaper or somewhere else, there is a pathway back, but you've got to start by owning the harm that you've done and showing how you're going to do better in the future. Let's say somebody captures a bad tweet that you sent out a few years ago that you now regret. Why don't you run and tell the news on yourself first so that you can control the narrative and maybe talk about how you felt then versus how you feel now. That's the way you make it a non-issue so that nobody can weaponize it against you. So I'm going to close by talking about how do you do calling in. Calling in begins with self-assessment. You have to analyze how you feel and why you want to call somebody in. Because if you're not in an emotionally healed enough space from your own trauma for a difficult conversation, all you're going to do is bleed all over somebody else because you're not in a space 
to hold, build a container that can hold people's opinions that are different from yours. And so you have to do that self-assessment first. You also have to accept that you don't have the power to change other people just with your words. I mean, if you could do that, married couples wouldn't fight, co-workers wouldn't fight, families wouldn't fight. We don't have the power to exchange anybody else. We only have the power to change ourselves. But we can offer love and respect to people under most circumstances. And through our example, create change that way. And you may still disagree, but that's okay because people have the right to have their different opinions. I will close by saying the thing that I find as a great predictor of who really believes in a call-out culture or the call-in culture, or the calling-on culture, by the way, which was created by Sonia Renee Taylor. I should have said that earlier. But the greatest predictor is how, when they were children, mistakes were handled. If you were raised in a family where when you made a mistake and you were severely punished for making that mistake or shamed for making that mistake, chances are you think it's normal to punish and shame others. And that's the behavior you're going to exhibit as an adult. But if you were in a family that offered you forgiveness when you made a mistake, showed you what you could learn from making that mistake, helped you grow from making that mistake, chances are that's the kind of grace and forgiveness you're going to be predisposed to offer others. And so calling in begins with self-forgiveness, learning to forgive yourself for your mistakes so that you can develop the emotional capacity for forgiving others. And we need to figure out that we can go to places and get support, get assurance, solve problems with each other, create and normalize a calling in culture in our meetings, in our settings, in our workplaces, in our schools and all of these things so that we can all contribute to helping people believe in and experience the joy of life and the joy of our diversity in see, instead of seeing it as a problem. So I'm gonna stop there so that we can allow sufficient time for question and answer. And thank you all for listening to me. Thank you so much, Loretta. That was not only a thought provoking, but also very personally profound um, talk. So um, I am, and I, I think I, I um, speak about on behalf of probably many of our audience, uh, very, very grateful for also your generosity of sharing this with us. Um, we have lots of questions coming, so I um, just start reading out some of the questions. The first is from Asha Titus, who's one of our PhD students in the Department of Media and Communications. Um, and she's asking, based on your experience uh, in the women's movement in the 1970s, uh, and she writes, without being edged out by white feminism, can you perhaps share a few tips on how to use privilege to be a good ally? Uh, ally. Um, and she carries on to ask, how would someone with relatively more power in the same social justice movement can use their and kind of positionality um, 
and use different platforms to build a more positive future? Well, there's two answers that occurred to me quickly. So let me offer both of them. The first one is that because I spent 50 years in the women's movement as a black woman, I had to learn and sharpen <clears throat> my power of discernment because I discovered in most of the leading women's organizations, a normalization of brutality with which they treated each other. And then I had to figure out, well, when they're being mean to me, is it racism or just treating me as an equal because they brutalize each other the same way, <laughs> you know? And so <coughs> discerning that was always work because sometimes somebody says something to you that is just like they would say it to a white woman. But because I'm a black woman, it lands on me differently kind of thing. And so sharpening my powers of discernment became an essential survival skill so that I wasn't misdiagnosing what the problem was so that I could come up with an accurate and proportionate response. The other thing that I would answer is that we need to learn to repurpose our privileges and power instead of being ashamed of them. We have many advantages that we can use to benefit others. For example, everyone on this call is what I call the world's 1%. We're not the 1% in terms of the amount of money in our bank accounts. But we're, we are the 1% because only 1% of the world's population gets a chance at higher education. So what does that privilege mean to us? How are we going to use that, repurpose that in order to benefit others? Uh, is not advocating that we don't get education <laughs> so that we can just be equally miserable with the ones who don't have access. It's about how do you repurpose your whiteness, repurpose your financial status, repurposing your educational status. So there's a benefit to others other than yourself. That is the task for all of us. And I think it's eminently doable. Uh, one of my favorite examples, for example, I shouldn't say that, but anyway, one of my favorite examples is a woman in a Starbucks here in the States. She was a white woman who watched two black men get unfairly arrested for sitting in a Starbucks and waiting on their friend. And it's without thinking, she whipped out her cell phone and documented what was happening because she realized that she was not under threat. She was a white woman sitting in a Starbucks. But she repurposed her white identity in the service of human rights to bear witness to what was happening to these men who didn't have her privileges. She didn't do it from a savior impulse. She did it because she wanted to be the best white person she could be in that kind of situation. And so those examples actually exist all around us if we learn to reinterpret them for what they are. And those are the ways that I think we recognize that the heaviest privilege of all is knowledge. And that's the one we most have to use responsibly and not use our knowledge to hurt and wound others. Thank you.
Um, I'm going to take the next two questions together because they have they are uh, somewhat related. Uh, one is from uh, Gustavo Streger, who's our uh, master's student in strategic communications, and asking about the ways in which governments and corporations can work with your ideas um, on calling in culture, um, calling in call-out culture, um, whether you think there are ways that corporations and governments can do it at all. Um, and then Tash Rajan, who's a master's student in uh, human rights and politics, um, is asking specifically about social media, whether you see uh, a way that this kind of imagination for alternative futures that you're proposing is possible within the very polarized current uh, environment of social media. And I know that you've participated in a new HBO documentary uh, called uh, Five Minutes of Shame, precisely about uh, this kind of uh, social media. Or um, Tash is asking whether we rather need to create other spaces to allow to connect and have these kind of productive conversations that you were um, encouraging us to have. Well, actually, those are three questions, but I'll try to give them all. Uh, first of all, yes, corporations and governments have to embrace a calling in culture. What I find that has happened in the 21st century is that corporations are quite used to having their worst critics to be external competitors or people dissatisfied with their products or services and stuff like that. But something has happened with the advent of social media where anybody with a keyboard can be a critic. And right now their worst critics are on their own payrolls inside the organizations, blowing them up for their uh, failure to actually practice the gender or racial justice that they put on their Black Lives Matter signs, but they don't practice that in their hiring or discipline practices within. And so I get quite a few calls from corporations and governments wanting help because they're not used to dealing with paying their own worst critics. <laughs> they are used to the critics being outside. And this is creating a culture shift, just like the Me Too movement has exposed that those sexist comments you said 10 years ago now can get your butt fired. Same behavior, different circumstances. And a lot of people just haven't kept up with the rapidity with which our social mores are changing. And so I get a lot of calls from that. Uh, can you go to the second question? Because I forgot any. Just, just, yeah, that was specifically about social media. Whether social, social media, media. yes. Yeah. Social media can follow the same taxonomy that I offered, that you can make a choice to disengage, obviously, calling it off. But you can also use other tactics. Like, oh, that's an interesting perspective. Uh, but let me tell you an experience that I had and then maybe lead them in a different way to say, well, I used to think this, but this is what I think now. <clears throat> there are ways using social media to redirect a conversation, to de-escalate a situation, to call for fairness and due process. Say, well, somebody said that so-and-so said this, but I haven't seen evidence of it. So do you mind if we put a pause or slow down and do more fact checking or what have you? There are ways that you can do that. Now, social media gets so quickly toxic that there may not be any airspace 
for a calm and reasoned voice to intervene. And at that point, I would recommend disengaging. And then the third question. Yeah, these were two questions. So um, I'll, I'll move because there's there we have more and more coming in, and I want to try and address uh, to give you the opportunity to address uh, as many possible. Um, there's a long question here that I it might be better to read. Um, that's from an LSC postdoctoral fellow, uh, Rishita Nandagiri. Um, first of all, I should say that everyone just starts by thanking you for the wonderful talk before they <laughs> pose their question. Oh, thank you. Ishita writes, I'm really struck by your comment about working through investigations and due process. Due process has been a sticking point with fem within feminist movements in different parts of the world. And she's specifically referring to India in the wake of Me Too, where due process was seen as a weaponized against younger feminists who called out harassment and abuse uh, within feminist or within progressive movements. Um, and so calling out your rights became the, the one of the only pathways for them to call for justice and accountability. And so she was wondering whether your under, our understanding of power must also be seen alongside who is doing the calling out for what and whom and what it is aimed for. So practically, she's asking whether calling out um, can be a tool that sits alongside calling in. Or are they? Are you seeing them as necessarily kind of adversarial? Um, and no, I, the question I, I, that I might just join to this is: there's been a question also specifically about individuals or um, the organizations that are uh, serial um, um, abusers, yeah, or that's doing it repeatedly, and whether calling in is indeed a strategy to deal also with this, those who do it kind of repeatedly and serial. Um, um, performers of uh, different abusers. Um, and um, yeah, so these two questions. You know, I said very clearly at the outset that there are appropriate uses of calling out when you have to punch up, when you have to call attention to how people are abusing their power or even abusing the law and due process to keep things from being exposed and being held accountable. So I'm not taking calling off, uh, calling out off the table. I'm just saying we overuse it, and particularly when we're punching sideways towards people with the same level of power we have. But when it comes to addressing people who have power or even the, the, the legal system that won't deliver any justice, then that's a very inappropriate, that's a very appropriate use of calling out. And so I'm not taking calling out off of the table. And I hope you don't see it as calling out and calling in as a simplistic binary, because I gave you a continuum, a spectrum of choices that you can examine to make the choice best suited for the situation. But be clear that you have those choices and each choice, is, each choice has consequences. And so you have to also calculate in the consequences of the choice that you chose. And so if you're ready to invite the government into a fight, go at it, <laughs> but it will have consequences. Uh, but at the same time, you should never be silenced in the, in the face of injustice. We may not be able to stop oppression, but we should always speak up against it. As someone more famous than me said it, Ellie Weasel. And so I'm not taking, I've never taken calling out 
off the table. I think that there are people who profit from injustice that I'm always going to call out. There are people who promote fascism that I'm always going to call out. I have no interest in having a calling in conversation with them because our goals are so divergent that we are actual opponents. And so, no, I'm not trying to say this is a panacea for every situation or reduce it to a simplified binary. I'm just saying that those of us who believe in human rights have a wider range of choices than we are effectively deploying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think if anything, you have very um, powerfully um, articulated kind of the, the, the need to shift away from a binary thinking and binary. Um, I'll read another question that would perhaps be our last question given the time. That's from Camilla Bailey, who's a master's student here in politics and communication in our department. Again, thank you for thanking you for a wonderful talk. And Camilla's wondering whether we can encourage calling in while still acknowledging uh, a victim's hurt and trauma, especially when the victim are, the victim is looking to calling uh, out as a source of their healing. Uh, yes, you can. Because one thing that I teach in my calling in classes is the different roles people can play. You don't all have to be the person doing the calling in. You could be the person creating the healing space for the victim. You can be the person creating the healing space for the abuser. You can be the fact checker or the witness or the bystander if you don't want to get involved. I mean, there's so many different options we have if we imagine them and get out of the binaries in our own heads. Uh, there's so many roles we can play towards creating this calling in culture. Never, ever, though, lose sight of the victim because it's not the victim's job to heal her abuser. But there are many uh, roles that the rest of us can play to make sure that that abuse doesn't reoccur. That doesn't involve the prison industrial complex. <laughs> and that's what I'm encouraging us to do. That is really uh, a beautiful way, I think, to also close our talk. Um, and uh, LSE events are still all taking place online, but I can imagine that if they were, your talk was to be held uh, in one of uh, LSE's halls or theaters, uh, the audience would be standing now and roaring with applause. Um, and there's lots of also um, people thanking you in the chat for a really, really... Uh, profoundly meaningful and um, thoughtful um, talk that um, I know at least within our department we will carry uh, with us for a lot of work that we're doing around these issues and hoping to call in and call on and carry on. So thank you very, very much, Loretta. Um, and um, we hope to hear from you more and we look forward to your book that will be published next year uh, with the same title, Calling In, Not Calling Out, right? Thank you all for inviting me. Have a yes. good day. Thank you very much.